Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. And we are rolling on a very special edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. For a great long time now, I've wanted to have somebody from Medac Pocket that is on the show. And I have had uh, Curtis. Curtis was, um, Curtis Sanheim was with the Calgary Highlanders. He was further back from the fighting. But from what he tells me, there was about 100 people that were actually in the fighting. And I have one of those roughly 100 people with me today. The legend of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, the man, the myth, the legend, Rudy Pajima. Thanks for being here, well, brother. Yeah, you're welcome. I don't know about the legend part, but I appreciate that. <laughs> you're welcome, pal. You're welcome. Well, it's uh, there must have been a period of time, I'm going to guess, where talking about MEDAC was just not on the menu. Was that difficult for you to talk about for... Uh, for a length of time? Well, it was, but maybe for a bit of a different reason. I mean, because at first when we came back, nobody even knew it existed. I mean, they hadn't heard a lot of news about it. They didn't really know what happened. Even at the time I came back, I tried to tell some people that were close to me, you know, a couple of things, and they were like, well, how can that be? We never heard about it. Yeah. So that was one of the things. Uh, so then you just don't talk about it. Then it became where... Yeah, I just kind of felt bad about maybe not having accomplished what I felt we should have accomplished. So I carried some guilt. And then anger, obviously. So, yeah, in a couple of respects, it was harder to talk about. But, uh, you know, I'm talking about it now. And over time, I think it does help to talk about things, right? For the benefit of the audience that has no freaking idea what Medec Pocket is or was, in 1993, the... Uh, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, augmented with the Calgary Highlanders, were in the biggest battle since Korea in Croatia, in Sector South, in a place called Medak Pocket. And even other Patricias didn't know about it, like barely. I was there in the same area, on the same dirt, one year later, doing a summer tour in Croatia, in the Kryina. And we kind of knew that something happened but other than talking to each other and that uh, had conversations with people like yourself that was the only intel that we had there was no debriefing there was no information at all that which would have been super helpful for us being that we're in the same place uh, more or less the same place so what was that like for you and for a lot of the troops knowing that it was the secret battle? Uh, it was a bit of a drag, but I understood the timing. Uh, 
At the same time or around thereabouts, the Somalia stuff was happening. The government didn't want any uh, news about the military whatsoever, whether it was good or bad, I think. So, you know, rather than admit that we were under in, in combat situations, they would just have rather forgotten about it, in which they kind of didn't talk about it. And the CBC and all the mainstream media certainly didn't really talk about it. But, uh, you know, as time goes on, things come out, right? And then uh, things that happened, they they come to light and people go, well, what the hell? Why didn't we know about that before? But I think there was a few reasons and most of it had to do with the government, I think. Was there a sense of betrayal with uh, a lot of the troops that you recall? Oh, I think so. I think so. I mean, they, um you know, if you go and do something that you feel really made a difference and then come back and get slapped in the face and not supported, you almost feel, you know, there was a book written about it, right? Ghosts in the back pocket. You almost feel like a ghost. And that's not healthy for a lot of guys. And a lot of guys, even in my section, Mark, there was uh, eight reservists, right? From all over Canada, from Seaforth Highlander to, you know, New Brunswick, a good uh, young guy, Marcel Ouellette was in my section from New Brunswick. So all over Canada, we had reservists from all over Canada and uh, they didn't really get what they deserved after because upon, like when we were going to release in place with the Van Dues, when they came over to replace us, they were late. So that meant that a lot of these reservists, I believe it was over 500. A lot of them are now beyond their contract almost. So they were pretty well, when we flew back to Winnipeg, they were pretty well let go right off the tarmac because their contracts were, were done yesterday, you know? So I think a lot of stuff that happened that way uh, was unhealthy for guys, because there was no support. And I feel really terrible for the guys who were in the reserves, who were with us, who did a lot of the fighting there and a lot of the, the hardship, that they were kind of like thrown to the wind. I think it was even worse for them than it was for us, for me, because they went back to their units and probably were called liars, right? for having a beer and trying to, you know, unload some of that baggage, talking about it. And then uh, people, because they haven't heard about it, kind of think that they're exaggerating, right? But they really weren't. So I think a lot of guys had a hard life after Medak Pocket because they weren't uh, shown the respect. They weren't, uh, you know, treated right, and they weren't taken care of. And that goes for reg force and reserves on that tour. Mostly reserves, I think, suffered more. But I feel bad for, you know, a bunch of my guys, too. But uh, it happened the way it happened. It's good that we could talk about it now, and it's good that maybe uh, guys have started healing a long time. Because this was 30 years ago now, too, eh, Mark? So hopefully guys have started healing a long time ago. It took me a long time to start healing, you know? It took me 10 years before I dealt with anything. Yeah, and it took I, me I feel 23. Bad for those guys. Took, I'm sorry? It took me 23 years. Uh, we I've seen people at the um, OSI clinic that were from, like, Vietnam or Korea era. Oh, yeah. I totally understand it. Because there's a stigma, right? I went from being a respected warrant officer one day to people not really trusting me anymore because I saw a doctor, you know? And that was the stigma that uh, went along with it back in the day because I probably was one of the first guys to come through uh, and, and actually say, listen, I just need a break here. I need to talk to a doctor. I didn't want time off. I just needed to maybe just get some guidance, you know, because I wasn't doing a good job of it myself. So, but it was back in the hard, it was hard back in 1993. You come back, it was as if it never happened. So 
so time goes on and just people forget, right? So that's the way it went. Well, and nobody even were, were talking about PTSD back then. It wasn't even part of a conversation and nobody knew what it was, much less what to do about it. It was almost like shameful, right? Oh, yeah. Which I, it took me a long time to come to grips with it because before I knew it, I, I was no longer allowed to go back to work. The battalion was encouraged not to get a hold of me. This is by the doctors now. And uh, the doctors kind of took over. Medications were prescribed. You know, a routine was established where I would go to group and do this and that. And I did it all because I felt, you know, well, shit, man. If these guys are telling me to do that, it must be the right thing to do. So I did it. And then, you know, before I knew it, I was out of the army. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? You know? But it wasn't... I think my shame was, like, wrongly placed in myself because... I, I didn't like uh, bail on anything. I didn't, I wasn't cowardly about anything. I didn't say, Hey boys, I can't do the mission. I kind of suffered for a long time in silence, long time after I already completed the mission. Right. And that's the problem. You know what? I think my problem was too, Mark, when I came back to Canada and this has come with a lot of guys too from Afghanistan, they will tell you that it's hard when they come back because they're always trying to fulfill that need for adrenaline. Yeah. Or the need for excitement. For me, I came back and I tried to fill that hole in my life to, with no luck, obviously. I had no luck in fulfilling that hole because you can't mimic that kind of feeling ever again. No, it's, uh, I mean, a lot of guys like Tim Turner, you know, just had the big skydiving thing. And I love skydiving. I've only got 24 jumps, but, um, you know, but he does it like every day. Right. But there, even, even skydiving does not replace, a war zone. Oh, no. And you know what a lot of guys mistakenly do? They think an addiction will replace it. And I did. I, I thought addiction, my addictions would replace it, make me feel better. I became, excuse me, I became a compulsive gambler. Then I started drinking. I'd, I always drank throughout the military, right? Because we always drank. It's part of our culture. But then I, and then I started using it as a real crutch to sleep, to not have nightmares, you know, to really not argue when I went to sleep, I was going to sleep, you know, but, uh, I didn't know how to deal with anything positively because I was always trying to chase that, that adrenalized high again, you know, and what a failure that, that is. It's just, you become a train wreck, right? Yeah. The, instead of chasing adrenaline, the only thing that I know of Rudy is to replace it with a sense of purpose. Uh, oh, exactly. I agree. It's been a while since I've mentioned it on the show, but my longtime listeners have heard me say many, many times that just volunteer for something, something that you believe in. Volunteer at uh, the Veterans Food Bank uh, if you're in Calgary or or Edmonton or just anything that makes you feel good. Volunteer at the dog shelter, walk and uh, rescue dogs, like something. Yeah, uh, helping others. You know, what helped me feel better again was helping other people too, right? And what sort of, uh, uh, give me an example of that, Rudy. Of how I help other people. Yeah. Okay. Well, before I before I was released from released from the military, even though I was ashamed because I was kind of like uh, thrown aside from the battalion, I still did probably half a dozen speaking engagements from Vancouver Island to Winnipeg uh, to about PTSD for what troops can expect when they go come back from theater. I did that for a while. And even after I got out of the military, I always try to help people out. I uh, I support a lot of charities around here. I support uh, a lot of animal stuff because I really believe in animals. And I, and I, I really, my, my animal of choice is a dog. I have dogs myself. 
I used to breed dogs, and I think dogs played a big part in uh, helping me kind of heal. Because dogs, are, they don't judge you. Dogs don't carry a grudge. They don't resent you. And they don't look at you, uh, call you ugly, you know, or whatever. So maybe <laughs> there's good qualities there that people can learn from dogs. But I've always had dogs, and they really helped my recovery, I think. Do you remember Mario Salazar? I do. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, working with dogs. He's a dog trainer now, and I think he's getting into support dogs. Last I connect, connected with him, I'll have to. Well, do good a, for him, man. Have to do a follow up, but uh, yeah, training the dogs and martial arts and all of it, it boils down to Rudy is mindfulness, getting yourself out of your head and into a task and into a task that makes you feel like you're contributing to the world, because I mean, you cannot replace. Uh, what we did as soldiers overseas, that sense of contribution and purpose. I mean, you you just can't ever, ever come close to that. Uh, All the millions of dollars of equipment that we're in charge of and operating and just the size and the scale, and we're like being literally a part of world history. Um, You can't replace it. You put, I I hate to cut you off, but you brought a good point up, man. People, go through all that, and then they beat themselves up afterwards. And I did it. I beat myself up for no reason. Yeah. Because I thought, well, we could have done better, or this should have happened, or that should have happened, or, or I failed in that manner. You know, and I, and I did some decent things, but I always questioned. That's the problem with PTSD is you just end up questioning yourself and blaming yourself, you know, when you should actually maybe pat yourself on the back a bit. But I, that was, for me, that was hard. I never really patted myself on the back at all. Well, half of that is a gift. Questioning yourself is a gift. Um, beating yourself up, not a gift. You know, that, that's something, that is a lesson that is put before us that we have to overcome. We have to, Absolutely. Learn, have to learn how to not do that bit. Absolutely. But, and not to take blame for things that were beyond us. Uh, as an example, the rules of engagement, I don't think, <laughs> they're probably the worst thing that I had to deal with was the rules of engagement, the thing that caused me the most headache. Um, it's in the top three things <laughs> for the worst things I had to deal with overseas for sure. But at Medak Pocket, the rules of engagement, seeing the things that you guys saw, which we might get into a little bit here in, in a bit, but basically sure. people literally being murdered, uh, women and children being killed, and the rules of engagement, the United Nations is what was in your way. Not, you know, not, not your actual resources or skills or ability or courage. None of that was an obstacle. It was the actual United Nations uh, mandates and rules of engagement that kept you from doing more than what you would have wanted to. I say the big part of that, Mark, was leadership. Mm. At the higher levels, I mean, beyond battalion or battle group or whatever, if they needed to get guidance on a certain situation that was developing, if it was on the weekend, my understanding was that the, the UN headquarters in New York was shut down. <laughs> so, I mean, then you get no chain. The chain of command right there is broken. You know, so I, I found that to be a problem. I found that we had no assets. Uh, you couldn't have any, uh, like, uh, support. We're A lot of times, Yugoslavia was a mission that we kind of went there, put sections all over the place. And they did great jobs. And there's all these outstanding stories of, you know, these guys having real balls being where they are, all on their own. 
They had no fast air. They had no arty. You know, and they just had to do the job. And they knew they were without leadership at the highest level. And, uh, yeah, that was the way it was. And we had to deal with that. And we made this mission still work. You were over there in 94. You still must have seen that there was no leadership at the high level. Well, uh, our uh, particular tour, Roto 4, now there's two Roto 4s because there's Op Harmony and Op, Op Cavalier on the Bosnia side. Um, but ours was Op Harmony, the Croatian side. It was yeah. famous for uh, Mike Dykow and <laughs> Cable Gun as our RSM, just horrible leaders. And yeah. um, it was that leadership that caused more damage and people angry to this day. I mean, the odd person had a good go. Uh, Joel Turnbull keeps talking about that tour, tour like it was just the best tour ever. Uh, and that's, you know, good on him. But I, I know what his tour was like because uh, we were both in A Company, and it wasn't like a lot of ours. Um, the rest of the battalion were like, yeah, this is a shitty tour, but at least I'm not an A Company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel for you, and it happens, eh? I mean, you can't always uh, pick who you work for or who you work with. Yeah. But for me, the guys that were there, and I did Roto 1 and 2, both those groups of guys, great guys. Yeah, for sure. You know, and even the burden being put on all the reserves. Because, goodness, how, how bad does things have to be where you have to start stacking your battalions with 500 reserves because you just don't have any army left? One of the other blessings of Yugoslavia, at least from my perspective, and I'm curious if if uh, you have the same experience. Like the first couple of years I was in the in the army, you know, we were always shitting on the reservists, uh, half timers, and all that. Well, once I actually worked with them overseas, and even the workup training, that was just gone. It's like no, they're they're all doing the same job. They're doing the same job and doing it as well or better than the rest of us, and um, a whole new respect came to uh, the reserve units, especially once we were actually overseas and uh, doing our job and operating on missions. Uh, there was no dividing line between rake force and reserves at that time because we're all doing the same job. I, I found that to be 100% true. Um, I mean, guy, uh, sometimes the guys from the reserves, because they, they had such an eagerness, they, I, I preferred to have those guys sometimes. Yeah, sometimes they were better soldiers. Not better soldiers, just maybe more eager. I don't know. Because uh, yeah. if we're Patricias that do it all the time, you know, they're good soldiers, but it might just be a bit mundane. You know, I just found the, the reserves I had in my section in Madak, they were eager to learn. They were eager to, and we trained hard even before we went into the Madak pocket. We had uh, time in these small villages to do some training. And everybody was upbeat, gung-ho, you know. I'd say they were gung-ho. And I appreciated that. Patricia's every bit as good. I mean, gee, we were all doing the, the job, right? But uh, I was impressed with the reserves because they uh, they could come and fit right in. The only problem was the higher you went up, like a, a reserve captain or a reserve major with more responsibility might have had a harder time. Yeah. But the troops, man, they were awesome. No complaints about those guys. That's... Uh... Let's jump into Medek Pocket. So you're there. What was the first rumbling that you heard that uh, of this place and what was going on? Like, what was the the birth of the entire event? Oh, God, the first I would have heard about it, Mark, honestly, 
was when I was back on my leave in Canada. I had my little, my two weeks off or whatever. Me and Rod Daring actually were both on the same leave block. And I watched it on TV, some coverage. And I'm like, holy cow, that's my battalion. And I'm like, I tried to get back early, couldn't do it or whatever. So Rod and I come back, went to Camp Durabar, which was in Sector West. Went and grabbed our gear, which was already packed into a sea container back then. And we uh, took a bus to meet up with the troops who had already made the long road move from sector uh, west to sector south and were camped out, I don't know how, how many kilometers from the DAC area. But we were kind of hunkered down for a little while before we got the, the, the go-ahead to move in there. So we moved in there. And then there was a little work up to it. We uh, had some time. I built, because uh, I was the advanced pioneer in the platoon there, we got a whole bunch of guys together. We sandbagged that house. And then we just kind of waited a couple of days. Bang. It was 9th September. I remember I was getting ready to go on patrol, kind of saying in my head to my mom, you know, happy birthday. It's her birthday, 9th September. And then, bam, a freaking mortar round came in. Probably landed in the crown of a tree about 50 meters from us. Me and my driver at the APC getting ready for patrol. And that's pretty well how it started. That was about 6, 7 in the morning. <clears throat> then it continued on. God, we took Artie that day. God, everything from mortars to uh, larger rounds, so I'm artillery. Just gonna, and uh, I'm just going to translate for the civilian audience. Artie is artillery, and earlier you mentioned fast air. Uh, we're talking about uh, aircrafts like fighter jets and whatnot. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, uh, we took uh, incoming the whole day, and... The house got chewed up quite a bit, actually. We had a few rounds inside the compound. It was good that we had some time to build that house up a bit because uh, it took a lot of shrapnel. And then we ended up uh, staying at the house for a while. I moved out of there the next morning, or the morning, cup mornings after, maybe, and uh, pushed forward, and company headquarters moved into the Medak house, and they staged, or they staged the company out of there. That was when I uh, went and set up an OP. And then I went and set up an OP in no man's land. And the interesting thing about that was it was in the middle of a minefield. And we'd cleared some of the mines. And uh, we kept the rest of the mines for our own protection. And we dug in a bunker. So you just, uh, the, the engineers just cleared a path to the observation post? No, I, I did. I you did? did. Yeah, because well, you were my like, guys. Because I had an engineer corporal right. from the reserves. And I'm an advanced pioneer. So. Right. I took care of a few mines with him, and then we left the rest. Uh, it was called uh, In the Buffer Zone, and there was a Czechoslovakian mine roller, and it was a T-54-55 tank chassis with chains. They were flailing for mines by my position in the middle of the buffer zone. And it was the Czech guy, and uh, we're all yelling, eh? Like, I stood up, shit. The guy's going, Sarge, there's a, there's a vehicle coming towards us, and... He's going to hit those mines. And so I'm like, yeah, you're right. So I look up. We're all waving, trying to wave him off, eh, Mark? And uh, he's like waving out of the hatch. Dovrajania. <laughs> and bam, he hits a mine. And because they were hooked up, they were uh, on daisy chain and they were on wire. So two of them went off. And he got, that tank took some frag, but he didn't get hit. He got rung up pretty good, though. He never did come any further. We never seen him again. He just backed off, took off. That was it for that. But he put holes in our tent because those mines, when they went off, it was uh, the PMR-2A1S. 
still remember it. Put holes in our sections of mud we had set up. So for the rest of the time, and it was September, so it's the rainy month in Croatia. We had a leaky tent because of that guy. So he wasn't, <laughs> wasn't very popular with my guys. Dobrogen, yeah, yeah, whatever. But yeah, it was funny stuff like that happened sometimes too. It was good. You know what? I have to tell you, for the job we were given and the, the equipment we had to work with, I mean, we're using M113s, for goodness sake, you know? One of our carriers in the company got uh, hit by an RPG one time, and because it was less than 50 meters, it didn't arm, but it smashed right through that side of that carrier, and yeah. it settled into the radio tray because they are just made out of like a magnesium aluminum alloy. Yeah, and again, for our audience, the M113s, it's... Uh it's an armored personnel carrier uh, with tracks on it. And uh, I, I just call it a tank because that's what uh, a civilian would look at it and think, oh, it's a tank with people in it. Well, kind of. But uh, it's an armored personnel carrier with tracks. And it was out of date when we were using it. It was 30 years old already when we were using them in Yugoslavia. Yeah, they were old. Uh, we shouldn't have been using those, but that was what was in uh, Germany at the time, right? what we had we scrambled out quickly for yugoslavia because we weren't it wasn't something we had years to work up to right so we had to kind of grab what was available get it over to croatia and start getting to work right so we didn't have any time that was the problem yeah that's exactly right so when um when did you at what point did you know that the fighting was going to start or did you not know until it started no, we'd been harassed uh, before we went uh, in to occupy that, the Kraina there. Uh, like, we had established, like, a kind of a perimeter around uh, several company groups, uh, you know, sleeping in tents and bombed-out houses with kind of setting up a perimeter around the area. And uh, we would get drive-bys at night, guys hucking grenades at us and stuff like that. So we knew that the overall tone was we were not welcome. And, you know, I get it, too. God, it must look like an invading army, you know, because I live in rural Ontario. And if that happened around here, I'd be like, get the shotgun out, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But it must have looked odd to them. But for us, we had a job to do. I knew exactly what we were trying to do. We were trying to basically stop uh, the ethnic cleansing of what was going on down there. I mean, it was just a terrible thing. Civilians caught in the crossfire, right? Terrible. I hate that word so much, Rudy. Ethnic cleansing. Hate it. Because it's oh, just... It's, just, it's, just, it's so dangerous. It's just a euphemism for genocide. It was a fucking yeah. genocide, period. Absolutely. Yeah. And if I think if I might add something, it affected more guys. The fact that we couldn't stop a lot of these murders, that's what guys left Yugoslavia feeling terrible about. Yeah. Not being in danger or being able to react in a firefight, or even being shelled, because you can dig into the ground. It was what you couldn't do anything about, and that was prevent some of the personal misery. You know, when you could hear the commotion and, and the, the violence, you know, but you can't go and help. That really, I think, bothered a lot of the guys in the years following Croatia. That bothered a lot more than being personally in danger. Yeah, when there's actual screaming. and Oh, absolutely. You and can you, hear them, you can hear the women. And you can't do a damn thing about it. You can't do a damn thing. You beg on the radio to go and do it. 
and they tell you if you do, you better not type thing, right? Yeah, and yet we hold the United Nations up as this incredibly moral thing. Uh, I, you know, we have to reassess how we look at the United Nations. I think the United Nations, uh, the concept is a good thing. But what I found honestly, and this I'm, I'm being really honest, I'm probably in a lot of trouble for saying this, but when I did my first tour in Croatia, we were in uh, Pakrak, we were in Sector West, and I saw a lot of other units at the same time uh, being deployed by the United Nations. I'm talking uh, Nigerian battalions, Yemenis troops. Uh, and what I found was I found that these these third world countries providing a lot of the bulk of these men to the, the United Nations uh, were themselves probably in need of the United Nations. Yeah. You know, and that's crazy because they went into the theater. Like when I was in Croatian Pakrak to start off, I'd been there less than a month and I was starting to figure out that there's a big black market there because these troops going there made less than the the civilian populace of the place they were sent to. Right. So they were trying to make all, all kinds of ways to make money. And they didn't, it was just a terrible situation. The only real good troops there were, there were some Dutch and Finns there. There was a Russian engineer unit that was pretty decent. And some Norwegians and Brits. Pardon me? And the Brits, yes, of course. Yeah. But, but for the, these other battalions, uh, ill-equipped, ill-trained, uh, not paid uh, any money, really, uh, it was problematic. The only... In, in our area, the people that made a real difference, and I'm proud to say it was the Canadian battalions that were there, did a good job. Because we, we couldn't be threatened or we couldn't be uh, manipulated or bought off. We were there to do a job, and that's what we did. Proud of that. Before the, ba- stand, proud. Be- before the battle started, the way I've heard the story, and you can, uh, you can correct me, because I'm probably not right, but I've often told the story of Medak that um, other countries were supposed to be there to in support to keep off the Croatians and, and defend this, these uh, Serbs, just keep them from fighting. And other countries w- were there in that sector, but they ran away. And the only one, as the other countries ran away, the only ones that uh, stayed put were the Canadians. And they said, nope, no genocide today. We're not moving. Uh, is that how it happened or is it different? Um, I can't speak to the larger picture on that. I know why we went there. We went there because the French, uh, needed to be relieved in place because they were taking heavy casualties because they had made a couple of mistakes in how they, uh, kind of, uh, I supported that section, that sector, because they did some stuff where, I don't know, I don't want to get into the whole mechanics of what happened, but they, they basically lost the trust of the Serbs. So then the Serbs started turning their anger onto the French soldiers and killing them. So then they had to be relieved because that had to be stopped. And that's why the Canadians went into Medak. It wasn't originally our sector even, or our responsibility. But we were deemed to be an effective source or an effective fighting force to go in there and put a stop to this nonsense, right? So, so, the, so the, a more accurate way, so I got a version of it then. Uh, yes, that, that, I think so. That, that sounds uh, familiar. I think a more accurate version then of what I was told, or how I've retold it, is uh, that the French failed in the mission, probably no, through no fault of their own, but uh, failed all the same, and the Canadians came in to mop up the mess. That's exactly what happened. Simplifying it, obviously, but that's exactly kind of how it happened. Yeah. 
Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, that was funny. We moved in there and the French goodness, you know, they had a lot of wine eh? and they had to be, they had to move out of Madak, right? So they had to create a caravan or a road move. They couldn't take all their wine. And I was one of the first guys in there to kind of greet these guys. And, uh, I took as much wine as I could take in my carrier and, uh, drank wine for a while after that till company headquarters got a, got a hold of that information. And they took my wine away. Well, the same, a similar thing happened on our tour, only uh, I, I get all these stories years and years later. But um, our CEO, uh, I think, had a bit of a drinking problem, and he was uh, we had a sea can full of French wine, and uh, he was drunk all the time. He was never sober. But, uh, the same French wine that was left behind that uh, they got their mitts on. Yeah, well, because the French get it issued on a ration scale, right? So daily rations, you might get issued a liter of wine as well, and that adds up, right? Sure does. So, yeah, yeah, we drank a bit of wine. I mean, I wasn't drinking wine all the time. I'm not a wine drinker, but certainly a couple of nights in the bunker where you have a couple of shots of wine, you're like, yeah, this shit's got to stop, you know? <laughs> yep, so that were crazy times, and it was 30 years ago, eh? We just celebrated the 30-year anniversary there. Or 29. No, 30. Well, 29. Yeah, it's 29, eh, Barb? 29. Yeah, it's Yeah, 1993. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> that's I thought right. it was goodness. I'm getting older, right? I'm losing my mind. Well, things like this, though, really, I mean, it's like it, some some of it, some of the images, it's like it, uh, they don't age. It's like it happened this morning. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, people don't change. You know, equipment changes. The geography changes, but people, no matter what weapons they're fighting with or what reason they have for hating each other, they don't change. So, yeah, it was... uh, The good thing about having that happen to the Canadian military, Mark, is that it kind of filled a gap and and gave us what we needed to prepare to go into Afghanistan as well. Yeah, I I think the entire... um our, our entire, all the work that we did in Yugoslavia prepared for that because as you well know, it takes uh, it takes a little bit of time in a war zone to get that thick skin or however you want to say, just to get acclimatized to a war. Absolutely. And um, I mean, the, the first couple of weeks are, you know, you're all wide eyed and nervous and what the hell, <laughs> this is, this is real. Oh my God. <laughs> You know, it takes a bit to get used to it, but once yeah. you're once you're used to it, you get that battle hardened um, uh, acclimatization is the only best way I know how to describe it. Uh, you know, you don't lose that, and and you get better at it. It's like uh, you know, war. It's it's a shitty thing, but if you don't practice, mm-hmm. you know, you lose your edge. Absolutely, and the only way to stay. The current, if I might put it in in those terms, is you have to be at war once in a while, you know? It's a silly thing to say, but uh, that's what armies need. An army that goes without a war for a long time is just going to be crap. Well, it's one of the toughest things about uh, Yugoslavia, because we were a peacetime army, and a lot of guys had Cyprus tours, but Cyprus had been easy peasy for the longest time. I mean, in, yep. the, in, in the 60s, it would have been a straight-up war zone, but yep. uh, not so in in the mid to late eighties and nineties. Uh, so yeah, you're right. We, it's a long time. Yeah, and we saw a division after after the you know Roto Zero and Roto One and Roto Two. Um, 
of who of who could do the war thing and who could not. And yeah. we saw a lot of people that we thought were these hard, tough soldiers, and um, and they were, but they had a reality check with the war and, you know, it kind of separated the wheat from the chaff. And, and it always does. And that's the way of it. It has to be that way because, uh, it's as much as we train in a, like a peacetime environment, you can't really mimic no. that, those situations to, to hundred percent realism. You can't do it unless yeah. you have two way ranges and it costs a lot of people that way. Yeah, the war is definitely an environment where you can't use the woulda, coulda, shouldas. No, nope, because because you, you don't you don't know, you have no idea unless you're actually in there and you're tested, actually battle tested. Uh, there is no training that can uh, give you the woulda, coulda, shouldas. It's like yeah, nope. uh, when you're when you're in it, that's the only time you're going to find out if you can actually do it. That's the only real time. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, how long did because I've, I've heard different versions of it. Once the fighting started at MEDAC, how long did it last? The intense part, I'd say 48 hours, pretty intense. I mean, there was a point that I went out with platoon commander. And MEDAC's a small place, okay? He probably got, I don't know, 30 houses. I don't know. Small, right? Like a, like a village. And at one point, the Croatians were so close to taking that town back, that there was tank fire coming down that main street. There was a tank on the other side of town firing rounds into the town. And that was as intense and close as they got. Because they, they, we had the MLs packed up at one time in case we had to leave, but we never did leave. Yeah, the MLs so are that, the, uh, the large trucks. Oh, sorry, truck, the, the big the, trucks, yeah. The, the big trucks, yeah. Yeah, so we were going to pack up and uh, get ready to go because if it was a senseless slaughter there, we couldn't do much about it. But uh, we ended up staying, and they ended up uh, getting repelled. And that night, Rod Deering's section got into the big firefight there. We were dug in all over the place, getting ready for the same, and uh, uh, we held our ground, and that kind of, the next day I went out to the OP, found that OP there, and uh, after that, Croatians kind of back on their heels. But they expected us to totally bail, right? Yeah. Now, and we did not. Another part of the story that I heard was that um, it was the first time since Korea that Canadians dug in uh, full-on defense trenches and fighting trenches. I, I think that's, in a defensive posture, That that's true. But I think it was also the first time since Korea that we had taken that much artillery yeah. and uh, incoming rounds. Since our since Korea, yeah, so, and also you're right. We did dig in. <laughs> we were all dug in, shell scrapes, slit trenches, nothing extravagant because we had no time. We were begging for sea containers to put in the ground as bunkers, but uh, the Medak area was deemed not to require it before that all happened, right? And when it was happening, you can't bring it in then. The way I but we it. asked for one before, and they, the, they said, "Well, the engineers have they have their uh, priorities." The way I heard right, it okay. is that you were outmanned and outgunned by a large ratio. And that uh, the overall, although it was two days that were intense, it was three or four days total of fighting. Uh, how, oh, yeah. How close is that? It's pretty accurate. I mean, um, I was up at the OP there, the observation post, given info 
to the highest levels of the UN at the time uh, for a few days after that. So, and then uh, the big divisional reconnaissance guys took that over. But yeah, it was intense for I'd say you know four or five days. And the 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 funny thing about this mark is that it was right before we were coming home, right? It was right before we were all coming home because the tour was supposed to end around mid-September and we were all supposed to be back in Canada. But the Van Dues, because they were late because they had some problems getting the troops together, they were 13 days late. That extended that tour into October. So, but yeah, that was literally happening at the end of that tour for the 2nd Battalion. So another couple of weeks, I might have missed that one. But interesting, eh? It is. Now, another thing about this battle is that despite four or five days of fighting, two of those days, very intense, not one Canadian died. What? No. Uh, there were some injuries, though. Yeah, we had a handful of injuries. We had a guy, uh, what was his name? Uh, Lapthorn? Yeah, I think it was Lapthorn. Got shrapnel in the hand, in the shaving tent, and that was. I mean, it was funny about that day, Mark. It was a round that landed, you know, further away. So you're not after a while, you're not paying too much attention to those rounds. But that was the round that sent shrapnel through uh, that troop's hand. Okay, so uh, an artillery round landed, didn't go boom, but went. Oh, it boom. did. It went off, but it was further away. It didn't land in the compound. Oh, okay. And it went through the mod. I mean, the mod was already hit by frag before, but we were all in there shaving and stuff. Yeah. Because Canadians try and keep looking good too, eh? Yeah, keep shaving. Even when you're fighting. (laughs) (laughs) I got to keep shaving, even the Arctic. Yeah. Not just kidding. But yeah, that that was pretty, uh, and our CQ guys got hit with mortar round. Four of them, I think, in the, the garbage truck, delivering rations and garbage. But you're right. I mean, I think it was a testament to uh, digging in, obviously, uh, sandbagging and digging in. One of the things that the Canadian government wanted to bury was how many Croatians died in that battle. The official number, if I remember correctly, was something like 27. But from people that I've talked to, that's impossible. There's one C6 gunner, stories are told, that uh, feels that there was a bottleneck of troops at one point and he had 50 or 60 himself with the C6. So the 27 or 47 or whatever the official number is uh, could not possibly be true. The estimates that I've heard are somewhere uh, north of 200 uh, dead Croats for that battle. What is your feeling on it? I honestly couldn't speak to that because uh, that was... Probably you're talking about over at Rod Daring's section there. Um, I don't know. Uh, there was a lot of guys, they say. 200 sounds like a lot, but I don't know. I couldn't really uh, say yes or no on that, Mark, honestly. Well, at the end of the day, the Canadians held the ground. Held the ground for sure. Yeah. There was great gallantry there, for sure. In 2002, uh, the... Colonel of the regiment, Commander-in-Chief Adrian Clarkson, awarded the the unit 
The governor general, yeah. The governor general. Right. As, oh, right. It was as governor general at the time. Uh, yes, the, she was. Then she became colonel, um, colonel of the regiment yes. later. After that, yes. So Adrian Clarkson um, gave a commendation to uh, the 2nd Battalion. Yeah. Now, that's 2002. So, I mean, that's nine years later. Yeah. But at least that actually came out. And now uh, at the 2nd Battalion at Shiloh, uh, there's uh, a MEDEC drill hall. There's, I mean, within, within our community, it's it's covered. But I personally know a couple of Calgary Highlanders, because the Highlanders were there too, and they never heard of Medak Pocket. It's still the secret thing. Do you know much about uh, the movie that was uh, shot about Medak? It was uh, shot in Ontario just recently here, like a few weeks ago? I, I heard a little bit about it. Um, I'm interested in seeing it. It's, apparently it's a short film yeah. um, about, uh, you know, not only that, but I think dealing with talking about PTSD and stuff like that, right? Well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, they had soldiers that were actually there with you at MEDAC yeah. that are part of it. You know, um, Curtis Sandheim is an actual professional actor. He's actually, uh, he's just got a signature role at Heartland. So he's got back into acting. He's had a change of heart. He's getting back okay. into movies and stuff. Interesting. But, uh, so I don't know what role he has for this, but they're using the guys again. Yeah, um, awesome. Which is Which is pretty cool. Well, I'm and, interested in seeing it. Yeah, it's uh, well. Thank God it's being even in a short movie. Like at least it's being memorialized and yeah. remembered because it's something that we should be proud of as Canadians. And at the very least, we should know uh, about Medak uh, outside of the Second Battalion, you know, and and outside of our regiment. It, this should be something that everybody knows the name of. I agree, and you know, it's. It's a moment that we really kind of showed our colors again. And we were able, as Patricia's, to, uh, you know, it wasn't the psalm or anything, but it was a situation we had to adapt to and a situation we had to help control. And uh, obviously it didn't work out 100% the way I wanted it to, but because there was a lot of failures along the way because it's the UN, right? That was the biggest problem of all. But the guys we had there, the guys that we had doing the job, Oh, they all deserve a medal, man, because I, I got nothing but respect for those guys. Because what people don't talk about either, Mark, is aside from the danger of it, uh, it was the most heavily mined place on the planet when I was there. Yeah, me too. It, it was also living conditions, okay? Because guys go to Afghanistan. My wife's been to Afghanistan twice. So she knows, tells me all the stories about how the fobs are and all that. And they, they have a lot of amenities now, right? Which when we went there... God, I remember being up in the mountains where the sections around the burn barrel because their hands are freezing, you know? So uh, just the living conditions as well for those tours was a little more difficult because when you're establishing an AOR, which is an area of responsibility, where you guys are patrolling out of whatever, takes a while, right? So amenities aren't there. I remember waiting for the Canics truck, the five-quarter. Remember that? Yeah. I, I was at the end of the line one one time at one of the ammo houses up in the mountains. So when when the CQ or when the Canics truck came out, small little pickup with coke and stuff in it. So I'll translate. It that rarely had anything so, left. In it. Uh, the Canics is like uh, our general store, and right. and the truck would be it's just a general store on wheels. A five quarter is a pickup like truck. Like a pickup truck. It's a pickup truck with maybe a box on it that uh, is a little bit heavier duty than a, than a one ton. 
Yeah, yeah. And I remember, man, we'd always be at the end of the line. It'd been picked clean by the buzzards before <laughs> it got to us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, hey, good times, buddy, for sure. I wouldn't change a thing, you know? Uh, maybe I would have changed some things, but all in all, it was it was what it was going to be. And uh, we did a hell of a job, I think. 30 years almost later, and I'm still proud of the guys, you know? Well, it was the ultimate example of improvise, adapt, and overcome. Like, talk about Absolutely. getting thrown into the deep end uh, <laughs> without a life jacket. You know, it's yeah. like, okay, figure it out. Holy shit. And off and we went. And we're good at that, though. Well, and, and you made it happen, you know. Uh, no Canadian ca- casualties. You, you held the ground, saved goodness knows how many lives. Um, and yet the guys that I talk to, what they hang on to are the lives that they couldn't save because yeah. people still died Yeah, that, uh, that you didn't want to have, you know, they're just yeah. in- innocent civilians, um, children, mothers, families. And that's what people don't get about those times is that it wasn't um, soldier versus soldier. Not, there was no gallantry. There was no valor of uh, among the local fighters it was slaughter yeah you know it, it was, was. It, it wasn't a battle it wasn't viking versus viking it no. was it, soldier versus soldier it was children and families trying to stay alive versus heavily armed forces that yep. uh, would just slaughter them all but we tried hey we went over there and i think we did we did do some good stuff mark you know yeah, well, absolutely. And against impossible odds is my point, you know. Yeah. Against impossible odds, but you stood ground anyway. And the gallantry of the, the Patricias and all those that were attached to us, um, just an incredible job, an impossible job, but you did it anyway and did absolutely. it well. Absolutely. I do have done it too. All these yeah, years, a lot of guys. All these years later, I mean... Everybody from the Balkan tours. I mean, there's a lot of guys injured um, with PTSD from the Balkan tours, and mostly because of what we couldn't do, you know, uh, or the leadership that we had to suffer through. Um, Much more than the bombs and the bullets. I actually like and I miss the bombs and the bullets, to be honest. I I really do. That thrill, that... um, living on the edge, whatever it is. I miss the bombs and the bullets terribly, actually, you know, just living on that, um, on that level, but adrenalized. Yeah. But it's all the rest of it though. That, oh yeah. That, well, it doesn't come for free. No, <laughs> it sure doesn't. No, it doesn't, man. But it's like anything else, you know, uh, when you're faced with situations, you do the best you can, you come out of it and hopefully you can sort yourself out. And still have a good life yourself, right? That's what it's all about. And help others along the way. Well, having conversations like this helps others. And I know they're not necessarily the easiest conversations to have, Rudy. But there's a lot of people that are going to be listening to this conversation. And um, it, it just, when you say it out loud and you say it the right way and you recall it as accurately as we can after all these years, um there's something that acknowledgement, that affirmation that, yeah, yeah, we were there and we did do that. And it was a good job, you know, uh, affirm that bit of affirmation in itself 
is healing because there's a lot a lot of folks that were there with you that um, have suffered from PTSD terribly ever since. I know, and I feel terrible about that. I, I'm I'm one of them. I mean, if I could say one thing to guys that came back from all buggered up from Croatia and Yugoslavia and all that, it's be proud of what you did there. Absolutely. Because we had no support. We had no real leadership. You did it. We did it all in small pockets of section-sized guys. And they that's damaging itself, too, because everyone's like experience then is different, right? Because you're in all of these different places. So it's all different experiences, different leadership groups. But some guys come back and beat themselves up for a lifetime. And I, I would, if I could say one thing in this interview here, is stop beating yourself up. Because the good we did far outweighs any bad that you think uh, you have a reason to beat yourself up about. You know what I mean? We were so incredibly overtasked. I mean, it was an impossible job. There's oh, the AOR, the AOR was huge. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was so much going on. It was crazy. Some of the patrols that we would do, um, one of the just horrible, horrible patrols that we had to do at Dobodovoda were two-man patrols. They had to have been at least a full section. To, to do them safely, to do them correctly. Because if we ever came under contact and you're on a two-man patrol, you're just going to die. Like there's oh, nothing, you're going to get hit, yeah. There's nothing you can do, you know. Um, but we didn't have the manpower. I mean, we're working no. around the clock as it was. So uh, two-man patrols behind Serb lines and behind Croatian lines, that was the task, so we just did it. But those are impossible. Two-people patrols? impossible well they're dangerous oh brutal i mean yeah i've done all kinds of that and it, it really like comes down to again you, you need good intelligence on on the region that you're working in and you also need good support from higher you need good leadership and that's what pisses me off to this day still we did a good job with what we had but we never had i hate seeing the u.n nowadays toted as being the savior of the planet because that's a big bunch of crap. Sure is. Because they're just a false money-sucking machine. And uh, they don't really, with all the Canadians and other units that were there from good countries, the UN would have been a disaster in Croatia. But it wasn't, because we came through, right? Well, I think the Canadians and the Brits were the backbone of all of it, and Norwegians. Yeah. You know, um, they were the, the backbone, but... Uh, all the rest of them, like I, I remember running into some of the locals talking about, oh, those UN troops did some really bad stuff. And of course, I was quite offended. But then I realized, oh, they're talking about those other countries, those third world countries that uh, had sent troops. That's what they're talking about, not yeah. us. And, yeah, who um, would sell diesel in two liter pop bottles for 10 Deutschmarks to yeah. people who had nothing. Yeah. That made me sick. But hey, Again, we could just do what we control, what we can control, right? Do there, as good as we can do. You can't control the whole friggin' world over there. On the mission flag, there were 21 countries um, uh, depicted that I recall. Right. I haven't seen one of those mission flags in a while, but 21 countries representing the UN there. Yeah. Um, the Canadians cannot take responsibility for any of the other 20. <laughs> just no, ourselves. we can't. No, we actually made a big difference. So, hey. Kept people alive, man. That's right, and I'm, I'm glad to have done it as much as we could do it. And that's what we're all about, right? Patricia's soldiers. 
Any closing That's thoughts, uh, Rudy? No, you know, I, I appreciate you having, having me on for this conversation. It's, uh, it's not something, like you said, easy to talk about because it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of times in there that you're not proud of in recovery or whatever after the fact. But uh, like I said, I could reiterate one thing. There's hope for everybody who's suffering from stuff over there still. You just got to forgive yourself. And there's nothing to forgive, really, but people get all mixed up and they think there's stuff to forgive. You can forgive yourself now because we've done a great thing so long ago, you know. And I'm still proud of everybody that served a day there. You too, buddy. Thanks. So I appreciate your your time and I appreciate you uh, having me on. Rudy, I appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this one a lot. Thank you, my man. And uh, I hope you take care of yourself and keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, brother. Please stay on the line. Okay, thank you. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. With a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud.